All right, how many of you were born after 1985? Ooh, look at those hands. I see those young hands popping up all over. 1985, yeah. <laughs> 1985, you're never going to have some, y'all are going to let your hands down. Uh, you don't have to rub it in. I don't want to know, see the hand. You don't have to. Uh, y'all, y'all will never experience the thrill that those of us who were born before 85 had when it came to our music. You see, 1985, that was the first year that a CD player was put into an automobile. (laughs) Never had that amen before. It's the first time, and, and what that signified is that Music had changed. Music delivery had changed. We went from vinyl record albums into the era of CD, and now we have iTunes and Spotify and all those things that are out there. But before CDs, if you wanted to listen to music at home, you listened to vinyl. You had a vinyl record album that you would go to the store and buy this thing, put out good money so you could take it home, put it on a turntable, and put a thing with a needle on it, and it would make music, and it was cool. And we had other stuff. You know, we had cassette players that you put in your car, but in the background of cassettes, you always had so the music wasn't quite as pure. And if you had an eight-track tape player, you were just silly. Because who in the world? I mean, I had one in my car, but good grief, that was the worst thing ever invented. I don't remember the year. It was before 1985. But I don't remember the year. I was struggling with what it meant to be a good Christian. Many of us struggle with that our whole lives. What does it mean to be a good Christian? We are success driven people. In order to have success, you have to do something. So what do I need to do to be a good Christian? And I went to this conference that was going to teach me how to do Jesus right. Just like Colonel Sanders could do chicken right, I was going to learn to do Jesus right. And I was going to do it and do it just right and life was going to be good from that moment on. So I went to this conference who talked about doing Jesus right, and among all these things that he talked about, one of the things that he said was the most horrible thing that you could have was that devil rock and roll music in your house. Well, now, I was under conviction because I like that devil rock and roll music, and I had some of those devil rock and roll albums in my house. I had spent good money on those as well as winning the entire Charlie Daniels record library from the radio. I mean, I had it. It was going on at my house. And I get home from this conference, and I'm just so guilty because I've got these record albums in my house. And so I pray, and I struggle, and I think, and what do I do because i got this devil rock and roll in my house? So I took my vinyl albums out into the backyard, started a fire in the fire pit, And did something that you guys now can't do. I took my records and I bent them in half until they broke. There is nothing that can make you feel more self-righteous than breaking a devil rock and roll album in half and throwing it on a fire and watching it burn. And I did that and I thought, now I have done Jesus right. A little bit later, this is where you guys have the advantage over me. 
because a little bit later I realized that what I did didn't amount to a hill of spit. That the, the, the things that I had really weren't that evil. And I wanted my albums back. You younger guys can go to iTunes and go, I'd like to buy that for a buck 39 or however much it is on iTunes now. My album's gone. It's part of my history. It's burned up. I look back on those days and I feel pretty silly about what I did. But I understand that I had to go through what I had to go through to get to where I am today. I didn't understand what having a relationship with Jesus was supposed to look like. I mean, what is it supposed to look like? I thought I had been taught that everywhere I went, that if I did the right things, if I did Jesus right, there would be a very predictable ebb and flow to my life. That if I did what I was supposed to do, lived like I was supposed to live, make sure I didn't listen to the devil rock and roll music, that I only listened to WNIV in Atlanta, which is the contemporary Christian station back in the day, and I realized the CCM movement had a few people shaky, that that might have a little devil influence, but still, that was the best I could do. If I did all of those things, then I would marry successfully, I would have a successful career, I'd have successful children, nothing really bad would ever happen, I would retire comfortably, and I would end up dying in my sleep after a dinner of surf and turf and a big bowl of strawberry ice cream. Life would be good, and that's how it would all end. I mean, that's what Jesus does, right? He makes life. How does he make life? How does he make life? What does it look like? What does our life look like when we have a relationship with Jesus? What does a life of a bona fide Christ follower look like? As Parker read this for us, y'all need to give Parker Ogle a round of applause for reading the scripture for us this morning. Thank you very much, Parker. Parker's the man. I'm going to ask several of our young folks to do that for me going forward for a little while. Uh, as Parker read that scripture, as I read that scripture this week, it became more and more apparent to me that this really, this story really is about John the Baptist's relationship with Jesus. Now, there's some pretty high-flying theology in here. Of course, it talks about Jesus as the Messiah. It's the first time that they use the bride language in John. You know, the church is the bride of Christ, and this is the first time that that language is sort of brought into the story. He talks about Jesus must increase, John must decrease. He even mentioned God's sovereignty, the fact that God is God and is completely and thoroughly in charge of everything all over the place all the time. He is not surprised that Hurricane Irma did what Hurricane Irma is doing. He's sort of kind of in control of everything that there is, you know. If God is God, then he is. So what does a relationship with Jesus look like that we see in this story? First, the good news is, is that God has a plan for your life. The bad news is, is he's not telling you what it is. It's just that simple. He's got a plan for your life, but he doesn't telegraph it out front. I don't know very many people at all that, that, that heard a voice from God that said, this is what you're going to do for the rest of your life. Most of us have ended up somewhere different than we thought we were going to go, haven't we? That's one of the things i got to throw at you educators. This just got me a little, 
I read this thing in the paper the other day that said used to, you know, you had to know when you went to college what you're going to do for the rest of your life, but now we're backing that up, and you've got to know when you go to high school what you're going to do for the rest of your life. In high school, all I wanted to do was hold Cheryl Johnson's hand. I wasn't really considered, considering about how to get further along in life, and once you make a decision as a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old, I guarantee you when you're 30, you're in a different place. Because God doesn't telegraph that thing out there. He works in our lives. What John, what's John's, uh, what John says in verse 27, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. I had a friend that used to say all the time that nothing reaches you until it passes through the hand, hand of God. And that sounds all quaint, has a nice little romantic thing to it, as long as it's a promotion or the flu. You know, if a promotion passes through God's hands to me, then thank you, Lord, you blessed me. If the flu goes through, you'll say, well, it's just my cross to bear. Don't say that to me. That's such poor theology. But that's just what God's given me, but I'll get over it. I'll be fine. Yeah, those things are simple when we say that. But what if what passes through God's hand is Alzheimer's? What if what passes through God's hand is a stroke or a hurricane or an earthquake? I was at a friend's house at 4 o'clock in the morning because his teenage son took a .30-06 deer rifle, put it under his chin, and pulled the trigger. What if that's what passes through God's hand? The largest funeral I ever conducted was at the First Baptist Church of Forsyth, Georgia, where one of my youngsters, one of my, my church teenagers, mother I did her funeral because her and daddy were separated and daddy couldn't handle it so he hid out in the garage until mama brought the son home from whatever she brought him home from that day she had her window rolled down daddy stuck his head in the door and shot mama over and over again and then when mama groaned he shot her one more time just to make sure she was dead he accidentally missed one shot hit the son in the arm apologized to him and as the daughter comes to the door to hear what the commotion is he turns to her and says you need to call 911 i just shot your mother god knew that was going to happen what if that's what passes through god's hand to us you see, it'd be beyond cruel to stand there in that situation and say, this is God's will for your life. But if it occurred, he had to allow it, right? Because, see, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from God. It has to be. And John the Baptist understood that because he was having a career catastrophe. He was absolutely having a career catastrophe and he understood that God is fully in charge and everything that happens to us fits in with his ultimate plan. John had been the man. His job, the passion that burned in his soul, the joy that he had in life was to preach the coming of the Messiah, that the, 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 the kingdom of God is at hand. It's all he could do. It's what he wanted to do. He was good at it. People came from all over the place to hear him preach. They responded to his preaching. He baptized people. I can only imagine what it was like for John the Baptist to go to bed at night and reflect back on what his day looked like. How fabulous that absolutely would be for him to do that. And then this Messiah that he's preaching about shows up. 
And people start listening to this Messiah. They listened to Jesus preach. They went to where Jesus was. They got baptized by Jesus' disciples. And suddenly John has become a second-run movie in a discount movie theater. And God didn't tell John that part of the plan ahead of time. But John knew it was still God's plan. It's a method in the madness. There's a purpose in the pain. And because John believed that God would do what he said he would do, John continued to believe God. And the Bible says, John said, he was full of joy because he saw God at work and he had got to be a part of it. And that was enough, he said. It made him whole. It made him complete. Understanding that God has a plan for our lives, that he's not going to communicate to us in advance, and no matter what happens, that there's a greater purpose to what happens to us, that's one of the things that we hold on to as Christ followers. That no matter what, God is working in our lives. And God knows our pain. He knows what we're suffering. In Psalm 56, the scripture says you, it's talking about God, says you put my tears in your bottle. You're collecting my tears. My wanderings are in your book. This I know, God is for me. He knows my pain. He puts my tears in his bottle. He knows that I don't understand and I hurt, but he knows that I know that he's for me. And as hard as that is to grasp and as hard as it is to live, it's the truth God is for us. He has a plan for our lives much larger than we could ever imagine. Our lives are going to touch way more people than we ever believe that our lives are going to touch. People in a relationship with Jesus know for sure and certain that regardless of what it feels like, God is with us. God is for me. God's going to see me through this thing, no matter what it is. Number two, people in a relationship with Jesus change. We change. People in a relationship with Jesus change. And change causes us to act weird. It causes things to happen in our life. The scriptures say, so they, John's disciples, came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who is with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Not a trick question. I don't know if y'all have ever watched any of the Harry Potter stuff or you've read any of the Harry Potter books. I know that there are people that freak out about all that stuff. I've read them all. I watched the last movie again the other night because I like them. I don't believe in witches and warlocks and all that. But in Harry Potter, do y'all remember, there was a bad guy. And his name was the one who should not be named. Y'all remember that? This is Voldemort, but they couldn't say that. The one who should not be named. When I was growing up and you were really angry with somebody, this is what mom and dad did. Now, my family, I'm learning, is not normal, and that's okay. I think most of your families are not normal. I think most of us are not normal, so it works out pretty good. But in my family... Instead of saying a dirty word or something about somebody and you didn't want to name them because you were angry at them, you referred to them as that heifer. 
You could tell mama was mad. Mom would be in the kitchen doing something, talking on the phone to somebody. Do you know what that heifer did then? I'm not going to call their name. Do you realize that the, the John's disciples might as well have said, do you know what that heifer's doing? They wouldn't call his name. I thought that when I read that and looked back over it, I thought, no, that's weird. Because John said, behold the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. This is the one. You know they use the name Jesus somewhere. You know that, I mean, it's very plain what John the Baptist did with Jesus. And yet the disciples come up to him and they say, the one you testified about. We don't want to call his name. The one you testified about. Hmm. Three things happen sometimes when we are confronted with change. When God changes us, he changes things around us. There are three things that happen that we can see these guys did. Number one, change scares us. John's disciples didn't like what they were seeing. They didn't like it at all. They knew that if the crowds quit dwindling, they were going to be without a job. The things, their whole world was about to change in front of them. They didn't like that one little bit. They go up to John, they said, John, this isn't right. Something needs to be done about it. This has got to stop. They were scared. Second, change can cause conflict. This is sort of cool. <clears throat> Excuse me, this is sort of cool to a nerd, and maybe it'll be cool to you. If you go to John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the message translates it like this. Jesus realized that the Pharisees were keeping count of the baptisms that he and John performed. They had posted the score that Jesus was ahead, turning him and John into rivals in the eyes of the people. He's saying that what they were doing, instead of, see, John and Jesus, they're on the same team. They're preaching the same message. And yet the Pharisees get in there, and this is what the devil does. He twists it just a little bit so everybody can say, ooh, look at this. Jesus is doing better than John now. And if you go back into chapter 3 to verse 25, you see there a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. And I'm wondering if all of this isn't connected in there somehow. I don't know that. Scripture doesn't say it. But I'm wondering if this is somehow connected because purification baptism I'm wondering if the, the Jews, this Jew was at least associated with the Pharisees, and there they are stirring up trouble. And Jesus' disciples come running to John, I'm sorry, John's disciples come running to John, angry and spoiling for a fight, and John refused to fight. He said, listen, I understand all of this. I see what's going on. This is all part of God's plan. I've done my part. I'm doing what I'm supposed to. That's good enough. That's good enough. One of the things that I notice in here that I want you to remember and that I'm going to try real hard to remember is this. It takes two people to fight. It takes two people to fight. If one understands God's purpose and refuses to be pulled into the battle, there can't be a fight. That's what happened here. John the Baptist knew what God's purpose was. He says, there is no fight to be had here, boys. This is the way God designed it. This is the way God wanted it. This is what we're going to do, and, and we're going to move on. It's going to be fine. The third thing, change doesn't always turn out like you think it's going to. You all know that from life experience. These guys are learning this right now. Beyond the fact that John wasn't expecting the dwindling crowds, he didn't know this was all coming. Verse 24, the end of it says, since John had not yet been thrown into prison. <clears throat> 
I want you to think about something. We sit down and get to feeling sorry for ourselves sometimes, or maybe it's just me, you never do, but I know that I do every now and then. We'll sit down and feel sorry for myself and say, God, after all I've done, or Lord, I've done this, or Lord, I've done that, and Lord, after this has occurred, you let this occur to me. After John has been preaching that Jesus is coming, he lives in the wilderness like a maniac, his thank you from God is a prison sentence. He gets thrown into prison. John's passion was to live in the wilderness and tell everybody who would listen that the kingdom of God is at hand. His lifestyle, y'all know the deal. I can't remember, was it camel hair he wore? I forget what it was, camel hair he wore. He ate locusts and wild honey. This is the lifestyle that he was good with. There was nothing to indicate that John would ever have been unhappy if he could have done this very thing for the very rest of his life. But then Jesus came, and his popularity started to dwindle. And then he stood on his principles with Herod and Herod's wife, and Herod's wife didn't like it, and she plotted against him until he had his head cut off. I bet he never saw that when he was a 14-year-old. Never dreamed that when he went to the wilderness to preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that he was going to lose his head because of that. As well as we think we plan out our lives, God's plan rarely takes us where we thought we were going to go. Rarely. But his plan takes us to where he wants us to be. Now, Randy, Brother Randy, what about sin? And can I mess up the will of God? What if I do and fill in the blank? What if I have done and fill in the blank? Can I mess up the will of God? Let me ask you this. Do you think for a skinny minute that God didn't know what you were going to do before you did it? Really? Do you think for a skinny minute... That when God prepared those good works from Ephesians 2 verse 10, that he prepared those good works specifically for you, that you were going to do, he prepared them from the very beginning of time, that this is the work that he has picked out for you to do. Do you think that when you did whatever it is that you did, or that you're going to do whatever it is that you're going to do, that God had to lean back and go, uh-oh, I didn't see that coming. I'm going to have to take that good work away from him and I'm going to have to give it to him because he done screwed up. Do you think for a skinny minute that that's the way God operated? See, before you were born, God knew, listen, this is a freeing thing, folks, if you'll listen to it and take it to heart and believe it. God knew every sin you would ever commit from the moment of your conception to the day of your death, he knew that before you ever came to, to be on this earth. And everything is factored into his plan for our lives. Everything, our past, our present, and our future, when we are a Christ follower, is redeemed for his use. Even your craziness is redeemed for his use. You cannot fail him because he already knows what you're going to do. He already knows. So while we're wallowing 
Because we do have that failure. And we're wallowing in all of that. He's sitting there beside us saying, all right, come on, get over it. We need to move on. We need to move on. He knows you better than yourself. You are not powerful enough. You are not good enough. You are not good looking enough to mess up God's plan. You can't do it. Count on the fact that when you become a Jesus follower, your life will change. You will go to places that you never dreamed you would go to. You're going to say things you never dreamed you were going to say. You're going to influence people that you never dreamed that you would influence because that is God's plan in your life. Last point is people in a relationship with Jesus have their priorities change until they fully surrender to him. John said, you yourself can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The key to surrendering our lives to Jesus is found in that last statement. He must increase, I must decrease, and both of these actions happen over time. They don't happen immediately. You know that, but accept it and live it. It doesn't happen immediately. We often think that we ought to get better right now. That I ought to quit doing this right now. That I ought to start doing this right now. And then we find ourselves not, and we're so disappointed in ourselves. This process of following Christ takes time. And time is your friend. I got to confess to you, I hate Andy Stanley. I do. I mean, he makes me envious so fast. You're listening to the radio, you're flipping through radio stations, and an Andy Stanley sermon comes on. You have to stop because it's Andy. You know? You go to podcast, and I'm going through looking at podcasts I want to listen to, and there's an Andy podcast, and it's like a magnet. You have to hit that button, so you listen to Andy. You listen to Andy preach, and you realize that he's always going to be Andy, and you're always going to be Randy. You're only gonna go, always going to be one letter away from Andy Stanley, you know? But I listen to him. I don't really hate him. It's hard not to envy him sometimes. He's so good in the pulpit. But I'm listening to his message. He's got this four-part thing on decisions and talking about second chances and your decisions and all this kind of stuff. And in this message, he has this one line that jumps out at me that's so relevant to us. He said, time is your friend. Time is your friend. And we don't think so. We've got a million reasons why everything has to happen right now. I ought to be a great Christian right now. Everything should work right now. God should answer my question right now. But time is our friend. Surrendering to Jesus, when we read it in the Scripture, we think surrendering means that we surrender and it's done and we've got it and right now I'm surrendered. And and we find out that surrendering is a process. It's something that we do over and over and over and over again. It's a cycle. And God knows it because he created us that way. Now, real quickly... Three little things about what surrendering looks like. 
because we talk about it, but we never define it. This is written on my whiteboard in my office, so I can see it every time I start getting a little nuts. I can lean back and read this thing and remember that, wait a minute, Randy, there's some things that you need to remember here that's very important to a person who has surrendered to Jesus. The first thing is, is I've got nothing to hide. A person who has surrendered to Jesus has nothing to hide because you know what? I can't hide from him. He knows everything I've ever done. He knows what I'm thinking right now. He knows what's going to happen next week. I can't hide from him. So I have nothing to hide from him. And I'm going to get to a point where I don't have anything to hide from you. And we're going to get to a point where we don't have to hi anything to hide from each other. Because we know that nobody took more blood to be saved than anybody else. I have nothing to hide. Secondly, I have nothing to prove. I have nothing to prove to anybody. God has good works that he plans specifically for each one of us to do forever. Apart from him, we can do nothing of any lasting value. Those are both scriptural things that he's told us. He chose you, warts and all, to do what he's called you to do. He's asking you just to do the best you can. He does not ask me to be Andy Stanley, which is a good thing for Andy and me. He just says, get up, son, and do the best you can with what you've got. This is the good work that I want you to do. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have nothing to prove. I have nothing to hide. I have nothing to prove. And I have nothing to protect because everything belongs to him. I've been crucified with Christ. I'm dead. Dead people don't own anything. And I, I, I know, you know, we've got that hurricane thing coming up, and, and if it goes to the right instead of goes to the left, it might be a little worse here than it was going to be. And the other day they said we were going to have 100-mile-an-hour winds in our area. If we had 100-mile-an-hour winds, some of our trees are going to fall, and when those trees fall, some of those trees are going to fall on our houses, and when they fall on our houses, that's going to make a big old mess. And even if that happened, I know that I would not be happy in the least. But if I'm honest and surrendered to the authority of Jesus, I have to realize it wasn't mine to start with. It was his that he entrusted to me to be used wisely for him. And with it or without it, he's still taking care of me. He will still see me through. I will still be okay. All of you old coots that are as old as I am, I'm a coot too, so it's okay. I didn't insult you. It's our badge that we get to wear. If you look back over your lives, how many times do you see God's hand working in that life? Changing things, taking care of you. You made this decision. And when you made this decision, you thought it would do this, but it did that. And you realize now that it did that because God was taking care of you. How many times? Man, I can look back on my life. It's like a road map of seeing how he did this. Over time, we learn these things. We aren't troubled by being less and him being more. We're actually a little bit relieved because I don't have to be God anymore. I can let him do that. Let me say this for the third week in a row, and I'll probably quit saying it in about 10 years. God is not mad at you. You have done nothing to surprise him. Everything that you have done and will do is already factored into his plan for you. 
We are where we are because of him, and there's comfort in that. You got to understand that none of us will get out of this alive. Not a single one of us. Our time will come. Take a deep breath. God is fully, completely, and wonderfully in control, and he loves us more than we can imagine. It's okay. Let him be more. Let us be less. And watch how much more we enjoy our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you cause us this day, this moment, to see the depths of your love for us a little bit deeper. Jesus, some of the folks in this room are suffering immeasurable pain as they watch the people they love suffer so much. Jesus, teach them what it means that you put their tears in a bottle. Help them to catch a glimmer of hope in the midst of their pain. And Lord, we all want to follow you. We all want to see you and we try so hard. It seems like our failures always come at some point. Please cause us to see, Lord, that we don't have to be the kids on the playground yelling to Daddy, watch this. Instead, we're the child nestled up beside Dad, listening to his stories, smelling his smell, hearing his heartbeat. Cause us to live wisely, Lord. Cause us to live wisely. Give us all wisdom. And thank you for forgiving our sins. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. The invitation this morning is simple. Will you follow one who loves you that much? Will you trust your life to him? Will you turn to him and say, I know that I have fallen short. I know that I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Will you save me? If you'll do that this morning, I'd love for you to come down and tell me that. If you want to join the church, you can come. Right now is a great time, guys. You know you have about three minutes left. Then we have conference this morning, so you might have eight minutes left, but conference steals all your thoughts anyway. Have about three minutes left. Pray for those folks that you know that need to be prayed for. Pray for the lost. Pray for yourselves. Won't you stand?